This is the Roaring Elephant podcast for the 10th of September, and here is my fully orchestrated, thoroughly configured co-host, Jon. Do you still need me? I thought you automated me away. Uh, I could replace you with a small bash script, but there'd be no fun in that, so uh, so I'm not going to do that. No, 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 I'm from the COBOL area, man. <laughs> Crusty. Anyway... <laughs> As uh, as the title possibly may have hinted towards, and my glorious intro may also have hinted towards, we're, ta- we're today talking about orchestration, configuration management, automation, um, and really just trying to uh, uh, educate as to why it's important, why you should be doing it, what it all means, and uh, to do that, we have a special guest. Yeah, that's the best part, it's not just us. Absolutely. So listen to uh, us talking to Mark Phillips, who's a product marketing manager at Red Hat, but don't hold that against him. He's a genuinely nice guy, Um, spent a lot of his time hands-on, and uh, he's very focused around things like Ansible at the moment at Red Hat. So uh, without any further ado, unless you have anything, Jan? Nope. I totally enjoyed the interview, so let's get on with it. Let's do it. So we're joined here today with a special guest, Mark Phillips. Mark, how the devil are you? Hello, good morning, chaps. I'm very good, thank you very much. Uh, thanks very much for inviting me on. You're very welcome. Thanks so, yeah, thank, thank you for making the time for us. I mean, Mark, we've known each other. I just actually had to look this up because it was disturbing me. And we've known each other for over a decade. How scary is that? Yeah, that, that that is. Uh, I think that's about right. Yeah, I think it was sort of um, maybe two thousand six, two thousand seven when we first met. Yeah, indeed, indeed, long time ago in a galaxy far, far away. But uh, I already know a little bit about you, as uh, as we we know each other for some time. But uh, why don't you introduce yourself to the audience? Give them a little bit of background about uh, who you are and uh, what you find interesting. Well. Um, I have been messing about in IT for uh, a quarter of a century now. Uh, I like putting it that way rather than saying 25 years because it scares me far more to think of that sort of time. Um, I spent about uh, about 20 years actually being a sort of hands-on engineer type. Uh, and then a handful of years ago, I went to work for a very small startup and moved into the business side of things. So increasingly over the last handful of years, I've forgotten how to do absolutely everything. But I like to talk about it as though I do remember what it was I used to do. Um, there's quite a lot of that 20 years. <laughs> this, uh, I'm sure that we all get to this point, don't we? Um, yeah. So at that sort of 20 years, I spent roughly half of it working, uh, doing infrastructure engineering and investment banks and roughly half of it uh, in the ISP environment, uh, which was pretty exciting during the 90s. So I worked for um, I worked for Unionet, the biggest ISP in the world, during the dot-com boom. Very, very exciting phase of my career. Uh, arguably so exciting that I decided I needed to go and work in an investment bank and find out just how fast glaciers move. Uh, so that was a, another educational part of my career. It was all good fun. So uh, yes, a handful of years ago, uh, I, I spotted this small... Uh, technology that I really liked uh, and I quite fell in love with it. I thought this is a a fantastic little tool 
And I spent about a year trying to tell anybody and everybody who would listen and quite a lot of people who wouldn't how much I thought this tool was fantastic. Uh, and after a year or so of spending all more time doing this, I thought this is this is daft. I'd actually really like to just go and work for the company. And at the time, uh, said company, Ansiblink, was a little over a year old. They were only in the US. Uh, there was nobody in Europe or anybody else, uh, the rest of the yep. world for that matter. So I emailed the CEO and I said to him, look, I think the product is getting fantastic traction in Europe and I think you need somebody over here to, to help with the, the workload. And I sort of described the sort of person that I thought that they could do with. And then in brackets, I put, yes, I'm talking about me. Um, <laughs> luckily, he, he agreed. And uh, that was towards the end of 2014. And it's been a pretty exciting journey since. I'm sure many people will know that Ansible got bought by Red Hat in October of 2015 and then, of course, this year, the biggest news in the tech industry probably um, in a long time was uh, IBM bought Red Hat in the largest software acquisition purchase in history, I think. Uh, I, I keep seeing kind of images of small fish being eaten by larger fish being eaten by larger fish in my mind, with the largest <laughs> one being branded Big Blue. But uh, yeah, so it's, 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 you've had a, an interesting ride of things so far. And as you say, you spent a lot of time very much hands-on and dealing with um, a lot of the machinations behind the scene of um, infrastructure and dealing with a lot of what today's topic is all about, which is config management and automation. So I guess the first question is... It, you can throw these words around. In fact, I did just a tiny bit of research ahead of this uh, ahead of this recording, just to uh, refresh my memory and, and pad this out a little bit, so I had a bit of a structure. And I was amazed, actually, how many people are still talking about config management as if it's something new and exciting, and oh, the, you know, discover this this new wondrous thing. So. Let's let's go go back a little bit to the basics. When we say automation and config management, you know, are they the same thing? What do they mean? That is a really good question, uh, and and I think, you know, I, I did I did a little bit of reading myself about the history of it because I, I mean that sort of twenty five years I've been messing about with this stuff. I, I've pretty much always tried to automate everything because yeah, very early on in my career I worked in an extremely small team. Uh, half a dozen of us doing a, a quite big project. This is back in 1994. And in order to make my life vaguely even bearable, I automated away a lot of stuff so that I didn't have to do it. Uh, yeah. And I've pretty much spent my entire career doing this, is making the computers do the work. Configuration management was a phrase that I first came across in probably the mid-noughts, probably shortly before we met, actually. Mm. And to me, it seemed to be a label that applied to a lot of the things that I was doing. But that little bit of research that I went and did, I, I, I discovered that configuration management as a phrase came out of, uh, as per usual, the uh, American Department of Defense. And it was around the 1950s, really? I think. The, yeah, about 19, <laughs> mid-1950s, I think the phrase was coined. Yeah, yeah and it's, it's, it's like so many things. It's an engineering uh, discipline that we in the technology industry have, have borrowed from. Yeah. And... The sort of I think there is quite a big difference. If you if you take the true definition of configuration management, it's a very, very big subject. Uh you'll hear people talk about configuration management databases, CMDBs, um, mm. 
which incidentally I've seen so many big organisations try to implement over the last 15 years or so, and not a single one have, have done it to an extent that they're happy with. I mean, it always turns into a sprawling mess that doesn't seem to achieve what they set out to do. Um, oh, but that's okay, because just switch the technology, because the next technology will definitely do it right. <laughs> I, absolutely. <laughs> That's exactly the way things go, isn't it? Um, So, yeah, I think they are different things, but I think there is absolutely an overlap because I think in terms of configuration management that we all know in the industry, it's uh, it's, it's a label that we apply to centralising the configuration of of our estates and that can be servers networks anything i think i think it's the the art of centralizing configuration rather than it just being done randomly ad hoc i'm sure that when you're in a small environment and you've got five servers to look after going and typing five things is absolutely fine um when you're managing an estate of 40,000 servers or, or more then um yeah going and typing it on them is just well it's physically impossible isn't it so you need some centralization and i think that's where configuration management comes in yeah yeah absolutely so i mean configuration management you could say is like a it's a subset of the overall kind of automation space isn't it yeah i i wonder actually if it's the other way around if automation is a subset of configuration management mm-hmm. because with configuration management you can you you might have a database of items of things and they aren't necessarily doing anything until something takes hold of them which is where yeah. the automation bit comes in i think um so yeah it's probably in my mind it's it's that kind of way of configuration management is the 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 big russian doll and automation is the smaller one inside it uh, interesting okay so we've we've touched on this a little bit but i guess one of the big questions is you know why would you do this at all you know we've talked a little about you know managing five systems versus 40,000 or more but Surely just, you know, a simple shell script, looping in bash, away you go. Uh, Surely that's good enough, isn't it? (laughs) Uh, To many, it would appear, yes, it is. Um, (laughs) I I think that the whole sort of uh, configuration management and configuration uh, configuration management tools, which I think is a topic we'll probably expand on more over the the coming time, it's sort of born out of of that, out of shell scripts answering a problem. I think like, as I discovered very early on in my career, in order to be able to get uh, a lot of work done, I needed to automate some stuff out of the way. And having a central repository of configuration information, even if that was just a shell script with, you know, variables in it, for example, that's arguably a store of information. I think that's probably a starting place. And I think we probably all start that way. We'll, we'll discover that we we do something uh, once, twice, three times, and then we think this is ridiculous. I'm doing the same thing again and again. Um, I could just automate this. So I'll write a script because it's probably what people have uh, come to first of all. And, and I think that's... You know, I think that's absolutely fine when you start on a small scale. And in fact, yeah. I think one of the... One of the most impressive forms of configuration management I saw very earlier on was was probably the early early 2000s in one of the first investment banks I worked in. They had a really nice centralized configuration system. Um, really nice is subjective. It involved lots of shell scripts, Perl and M4 macros, which a lot of people oh, find God. really quite frightening. 
<laughs> I know you'll have seen this having, of horrors. Oh God, I'm already having flashbacks now. I, I'm, I'm suffering for a little bit of PTSD from this particular, uh, this particular account slash engagement slash time of my life. But yes, sorry, do continue. Yes, yeah, that sort of thing. I mean, you know, they serve their purpose. This is the thing. I, I think. Yeah. As I've as I've got older and uh, uh well in some ways more jaded with technology at the same time i've got more pragmatic about it in that yeah. some of these things that i probably would have considered an utter horror 15 years ago i now see as actually they achieved what they needed to achieve at the time so yeah. you know they weren't bad per se but uh, there were different ways of doing it and i think that actually sort of brings us on to the topic of yeah why not just use a bash script or something like that i think this is this is the way that what we think of as configuration management tools today, the likes of Ansible, Puppet, Chef, Salt, etc. All of these guys, these were all born out of a, a fairly simple fact, and that is, if you write something in a in a shell script, it's almost like um, it's almost like painting. There can be quite an artistic flair to it, and there mm. need necessarily be any sort of structure. And if you were a, a consultant and you moved from place to place, you would probably find that people did different brushstrokes and the picture, although it might well be a picture of a horse and a cart, it'll probably have a very, very different style to it. And if you're trying to emulate that style, it's really difficult. So I think what people did is apply an almost um, paint by numbers approach to configuration management, yeah. if you like, and came up with tools so that you had a language structure uh, and almost a sort of an opinionated way of doing things. So that then, as you moved around from place to place, if everybody was using Ansible, it makes it really easy because you're looking at the same thing and people can get going with their automation far, far faster. And I think this was, I mean, this was certainly uh, Luke Kinesis' driver, the, the the founder behind Puppet. I remember him writing once and probably speaking numerous times about taking this exact approach. He he just wanted a, a common language so that as he moved between places, it was easier for him to do the same automations. I mean, one kind of example that springs to mind with that is just something as simple as installing software. I mean, you, you could you could request to install, say, the Apache web server on on a machine, and you could do that a number of ways. You could wget a package from a location, um, and you could, let's say it's a, it's a Linux machine in, um, running RHEL, you could you know, RPM-I that file that you've downloaded into a temporary directory, and away you go. Or you could you know, use YUM or DNF, and you could install it from a, a system-configured repo. You could pull down source and compile it and, you know, do all that sort of thing. So there's any number of ways that you could do things. But I think what we're talking about here is that, you know, the the language of that particular provisioning system would just have a some sort of uh, higher level language that just says install X piece of software and it would then interface with, you know, underlying whatever that system's primary uh, method of installing software was. It's that sort of abstraction layer, isn't it? Yeah, I think it's, uh, it's, it's, about, uh, it's about trying to do things for the greater good. You know, I read a really mm. interesting article only just this morning uh, on um, 
sifted.eu uh, which is a, a i think it's an nft backed website about startups in in europe so it's yeah. uh, it's quite nice focused on our region rather than a us focused sort of startup thing Anyway, this article I was reading this morning uh, was talking about how 90% of startups fail. And there was an interesting perspective that we celebrate this failure. And and actually, maybe we should, rather than celebrating the failures, we should be learning from them far greater. And the author Mm. wrote a a brilliant parallel example of the airline industry uh, and how whenever there is an aeroplane failure then the uh, industry governing bodies do a a big analysis of what happened with a failure. And that information is shared throughout the industry. So the industry learns from it. So therefore, we get far less uh, aircraft failures, which is why it's Mm -hmm. one of the safest forms of... I think it is the safest form of transport, isn't it? Um, I think doing things in a common language for automation and configuration management gives us that structure, that opportunity to be able to do the same thing that we all learn from the greater good. So instead of keep reinventing the wheel, writing a bash script or whatever to go and install your packages, then consume somebody else's work to do it and actually save yourself a lot of time. Because invariably, when you're installing a package or doing some configuration, you're you're trying to build uh, a business thing that is that is actually the eventual goal. It's not really about the technology, is it? It's about yeah. answering a problem for people invariably. So it, it actually performs. You know, you end up with a you end up with something better for the uh, for the for the bigger picture for the, the wider good. I think. So I think this is yeah. why yeah having having common tools is actually better than just doing it in a script or whatever. Definitely. So I mean, one of the reasons or some of the reasons that you might want to think about automation and configuration management i mean there's there's a whole bunch of them from as as you've kind of alluded to removing that uh, that chance that if you're got to repeat the same process five times across five different systems or 40 or 50,000 different systems you know if you've got to do that manually there's a chance that you will do that slightly differently on on one or more of those systems or make an error um so Part of it is about just making sure that you do have that consistency across your environment. But you've also got things like just the speed of getting up new instances, servers, services. Um, You know, automating that means less kind of fiddling around and faffing with setting stuff up. It just works. Um, You've also got things like recovering from you know, disaster recovery systems or other critical events, meaning that you can you can automate entire kind of swathes of infrastructure kind of springing up and being ready for business without a lot of this, uh, again, faffing around with setting stuff up or having to worry about anything individually. Yeah, absolutely. There, there, there are so many benefits to to using sort of configuration management automation tools in in terms of how it helps people and not just the not just the sort of technological aspect so you're absolutely right scale is one of those things that really you you can't do unless you unless you apply some tooling to it consistency is a is a surprisingly overlooked thing um so mm. I, I i gave a i gave a talk a handful of years ago now at a, a trade show and I titled the talk uh, Migrating the Rumbook, uh, A Journey from Legacy to DevOps. And basically the, the, the talk I sort of I, I, 
I went over my experience of why people don't seem to do automation and then uh, the benefits of what happens when people do. Um, I referenced uh, another talk, actually a TED talk by a chap called Eve Moreau, if I remember correctly. Um, his talk was uh, was about putting a framework around the workplace uh, and, and making things a little bit better. And his first thing that he talked about, his first item was understand what your colleagues actually do. And I think this was a this was a really nice point that I thought fed into automation and configuration management very, very, very well, because pretty much one of the root things that we always say with config management tools is take a little bit of development practice and apply that to your infrastructure and store all of your automation, your configuration management in a version control system, um, you know, mm-hmm. Git, subversion, whatever because then you have a record of it. And this sort of, I, I realized this chap's talk, although it was about people and business uh, and structure and everything, fed very nicely into this same story. Understand what your colleagues actually do. You ended up, you know, if you do all of your configuration management, your automation, you put it all into a version control system, everybody gets to see what everybody else is doing in a nice sort of learning feedback loop, which I think mm-hmm. is extremely useful. Uh, and again, this sort of feeds into the, the the tooling type thing. If you if everybody has got their own style, then it's not make it, it makes it a little bit harder because you have to learn the style in order to be able to learn the actual goal, the thing that you're aiming for. Whereas when you use a tool and everybody's talking the same language, that lingua franca type thing, uh, it, it's a it's a big help to everybody, and you 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 have a, a wider good from it. Yeah, absolutely. So. One of the one of the questions that people who maybe haven't started down this uh, down this road yet um, must be thinking is, isn't this an awful lot of of overhead? You know, to start to start doing this in the first place, and you know, do you need to be at a certain level of scale before it's uh, before it's even worth doing it? Now, I certainly have my thoughts, but how would you how would you answer those kind of questions? Yeah, I think, I mean, if you've got some thoughts and you want to share them, I think that could be quite interesting um, <laughs> because so, you're right. There is, uh, uh, no, go on, go on, give us, give us, give us your thoughts. I am all right, really so, so, so first of all, I don't, I mean, there is definitely some upfront work. I mean, unless you're just doing, just, just doing the bash script with some variables kind of approach, you're going to have to learn another piece of technology in order to be able to do this with you know one of the one of the many systems that are out there so there is definitely a, a bit of a learning curve but most of these systems are pretty well documented there's a, a, such a lot of information out there available for all of them now that picking up and doing the basics should be fairly simple and in my experience, the the benefits that you get are like almost immediately realizable. Whether it's the consistency, the speed of provisioning, you know, depending on where where your pain is, you know, there's there's something that you can, in my opinion, kind of very very quickly point to as this is an improvement to our overall, you know, whether it's stability or. Um, just knowing how things are done or speed of delivery or whatever it might be. There's, there are so many potential, even just kind of short benefits. And in terms of the question around, do you need to be at any sort of scale? I mean, 
okay, if you've just got one or two systems and you know they just run and you never touch them apart from occasionally doing an update, yeah, maybe. But uh, what are you going to do if... I'd actually well, say that's I mean, a good candidate because if you only have a couple of servers and you don't touch them from time to time, in six months' time, I haven't got a clue how I installed that thing anymore. That was, was going to be my next point. That was yeah, going to be my next point, which is, which is if, you know, what if something happens to those two systems? How are you going to recreate those from scratch when all you've been doing is just pecking away at them for, you know, however long they've been up and running? Like, you've got no idea what you've changed on those systems. So, I actually think there's a lot of value. I think you can you can do this from the very beginning. I don't think it's that much hard work. And I, I think, you know, start as early as possible because then you've got the least amount of technical debt that you need to kind of recreate into this new system. Anyway, so those those were my thoughts with a bit of interjection from Neon. But uh, what do you think? <laughs> uh, I, I think you are both absolutely spot on and I'm, I'm, I'm fairly sure that you have both come to those conclusions very painfully through uh, <laughs> countless experiences <laughs> I have no idea what you're talking about <laughs> so, so this is so, so that talk that I gave a handful of years back at the trade show um, I, I've just actually dug my slides out uh, because there was one slide that I had uh, the title of which was so why don't people automate and I came up with four reasons, uh, and, and these were reasons that I'd both experienced myself over my career and that I'd yep. seen countless times through consulting roles. So the first one was uh, speed of entry. People will go, oh, you know, I can't be bothered to learn it. I'll just type it. It's just faster if I just type this now. Mm-hmm. Uh, that one I saw really, really commonly and, and quite often. Yeah. Um, the second one that I see all the time and still see now, and I think this is what you you were sort of alluding to as well, David, is is it's too hard. There's a learning curve for a new tool. I, I don't, I can't be bothered to learn it. So I'm, that it feeds back into the first one. I'll just type it. Um, then there's the classic. <laughs> this feeds into what Jon just said. Uh, I only need to do this once. <laughs> so, you know, when, when has anybody ever heard of a temporary solution in IT? You know, oh, this is temporary. It's going gonna, it's gonna to go away. And then 20 years later on, there's a Spark 5 sitting in a rack somewhere in a data center that's running one of the most critical systems in a bank and nobody dares touch the thing. Oh, well, it was a sticking plaster at the time, wasn't it? <laughs> yeah, exactly. So there's those. And then the last one, of course which I, I think feeds into the human condition of, uh, you know, we don't, we don't like change. People don't like change. Um, fear of the unemployed side. I think people think that if they're going to go and use a tool like this, share the bit of knowledge that they've got, uh, automate away what they're doing or whatever, they automate away their job. And I think that's quite a, a common thing as well. And, and all of these pieces, they all, they actually, they're all a fallacy. Yeah. And they all have uh, they all have really good reasons why they're fallacies as well. And Jon hit the nail on the head when he said that you know you, you're going to come back to something six months later and not know what you did to get there. And there's actually there's a really good quote that I used to use in talks very early on from Michael Dehan, who wrote uh, Ansible in the first place. Uh, Michael said, uh, "I wanted a tool that I could use." Uh, and then not touch it for six months, come back to it, and still understand uh, understand what I'd done. And I thought that was that was really that was a really nice um, key point that I could relate to because quite often I would I would move between different things in different banks, pick up different technologies to suit the environment, 
uh, and then I'd look back over some of my own work and think, what, you know, what was I doing that day? What was I thinking? You know, I, I can't even read this now. This is ridiculous. <laughs> so it's, yeah, I, I, the sort of the whole it's too hard as well uh, is, is basically a tooling problem. If, if somebody can't learn something in the space of half an hour and be productive in half an hour, the tool is probably too hard for its audience. Uh, and that and that sort of you know that's an important feeding point to, to many things actually is context everything's about context yeah. the, the context of the environment is very important you know the tool that you pick it it really does the skills that are there and present in the environment where you're going to work are, are very important if you if you go and sit in an entire uh, Microsoft Windows shop for example and you try and introduce uh, chef to them then good luck it's going to be it's going to be really hard work you might as well go and sit in an environment full of a load of brits and you know try and speak greek or something you're going to have as much success <laughs> so the the context is very very important uh picking a tool that is much easier to to pick up and roll with is is one of the really important things it, it banishes the the speed of entry and the it's too hard things straight away yeah the only I, the, I only need to do this once point as well, and you know, feeding into to John's thing about coming back uh, six months later to something. Um, if the tool that you're using is very readable instantaneously, then uh, that problem of not using it because it's easier goes away as well. Because what you end up doing then is self-documenting what you're doing. Mm-hmm. So you have this. You have this multiple benefits to actually picking up the tool and using it if it's nice and easy to pick up and use the the, the documentation the repeatability the consistency everything and very interestingly we had uh, we had the ansible london meetup last week and somebody gave a talk that was actually it was really high level it wasn't a tech talk at all uh, it was it was really good it was about his experiences of ansible backing up cultural changes and how having a tool that was pleasing to use actually propagated its use far faster, of course, understandably. And somebody in the audience asked, uh, but the thing is, is, you know, how do you, how do you get people to adopt it in the first place? Because the biggest challenge he was coming across was trying to introduce this new tool and people just go, no, I'm, I'm fine with what I'm doing. Mm. And this is because as people, we don't like change. We like just sticking to what we know and what we do. And, and introducing anything is, is hard work. So really, anytime you're trying to introduce a new tool somewhere, you're trying to change people. The only way people will adopt change readily is if it's really, really easy and really simple and they see they see gains very, very fast. Yeah. So the speaker actually said to the person who, who asked the question, I find the easiest way to get people to change is to show them a demo that is really short. So if you show them being able to be productive in five or ten minutes – then people's eyes will light up because, Dave, as you said right near the beginning of us talking, it's really common in the industry right now of when something has failed, just try another product. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And, and invariably, that other product doesn't answer the problem <laughs> any better than the previous one did. Yep. But if it is a lot easier and you can be productive very, very quickly, then people's eyes light up because they're just not used to seeing tools in the industry that can help solve a problem fast. So you give people yep. a very short demo uh, uh, and then the change comes about readily on its own. 
Mm. And the, the point you mentioned about context, again, is really important here. It's all very well showing someone a demo, but you know, put the effort in to make sure it's aligned with something that that person cares about. Make sure it's, it's, it's something that's in their space that you know has been giving them trouble and showing them that sort of, that, uh, that holy grail solution in five minutes or less, that nothing will drive adoption like, uh, like someone just thinking, ah, oh, I just need to adopt this. And all of a sudden, something that's been bugging me for however long is, is going to go away. And, and then they start to become their own evangelist in their own minds. They start to think, ah, oh, well, if I could do this here, I could do this, this here, this, this, uh, this somewhere else, and so on. And it just kind of, it, it's doing it well, it, it becomes self-propagating. It's not, it's not the question of, uh, you know, how do I, how can I get someone to adopt this in the first place? It's, you know, how can I keep up with them? They're adopting it so rapidly, it's, uh, it's just going out of control, which is its own interesting little problem, but... <laughs> Yes, absolutely. Yeah, you're absolutely spot on. Uh, it's, it's very interesting. Um, back in the very early days uh, of Ansible, uh, when I was still sort of playing a pre-sale, uh, pre-sales type role, one of the things that I, I used to do is the first time um, my sales guy and I used to talk to a customer, we'd ask them about their pain points, get them to tell us about their story, their environment, their people and everything like that. And we'd find a specific pain point that they had. Uh, and then what we'd say is, why don't we do another call next week and we'll do a demo specifically for you that, that shows you your pain point. Yeah. And Ansible was literally so easy to do this. I could turn around a specific demo for a customer in the space of a week and then show them exactly what they'd been talking about. And that in itself was a was a nice sort of thing because they realized, oh my, you know, they've just engineered this in a week <laughs> to solve our problem. Yeah. And when you're, yeah. when you're talking to a large-scale business that's been trying to solve a problem for a couple of years and has been trying to get the square peg into the round hole and then they realize that actually in the space of a week they can probably do 90% of it, that's the eyes light up and, yes, you're right, they they become their own evangelists for this way of working, which is which is great because then, yeah, it all feeds back into the industry. We all sort of learn from it. So uh, when we talk about uh, configuration management and automation, um, who, who is doing this already and how, how widely accepted is this as, a, as an industry approach and industry practice? Yeah, that's a, that's a, that's a fantastic question because um, I've, I, I've sort of I've recently uh, become educated on that very point. So uh, because I've always been automating throughout my entire career, I've always thought that this was the way that folks did things. And, you know, we talk about context yeah. and, and where you are. Yeah. I, I've, I've always assumed this was industry norm. Yeah. <laughs> uh, and then over the last sort of handful of years, I've realized yeah, how it's not. And and actually, you know, this is what led me to to write this talk a handful of years back uh, about migrating the rum book because I was amazed at the number of businesses I was going to see that were still working from a, a word document with a list of things. I, I literally saw uh, a hedge fund in 
when would it have been? 2014, uh, and this hedge fund, their whole code deployment process was a Word doc, and it had things in it like Chumod 777, a directory, <laughs> and things like that. This is in 2015. And I know, I mean, you, this is it, exactly. We, we, within the industry, we're used to thinking that that is unbelievably archaic, and yet it happens an awful lot. And the thing that I've realized only of late, how much it's still happening is... At the last four or five Ansible London meetups that I've been to, so since the end of last year and then all of them this year, mm. uh, when we first say hello to everybody, we we always ask how many people in the room are new to uh, Ansible, and we say new within the last six months. Now, on average, there are about 80 people turn up to the Ansible London meetup every single time. And for the last four or five times that I've been there, at least half the audience have put their hands up as being new to Ansible. And more often than not, they are sort of new to the whole automation space as well, as we discover later on. So it's amazing that, you know, based on that tiny little sample, I'd say that at least half of the tech industry is not using automation and configuration management at the very least. And I would say it's probably far more. Yeah, I, I, I certainly, my experiences sadly uh, very much echo, echo that as well. I, I, I remember doing a particular project with a large, large telco, uh, large European telco, um, and this was uh, back when I was at uh, Horton Works and had a, a huge um, cluster to deploy. Uh, but they were starting off with a, a small kind of pilot system, 20, 20 systems or so. And I, I wasn't part of the actual deployment, but I, I was part of the team that was overseeing what was going on. And they had some kind of sort of strange performance things going along on their on their pilot system, and we couldn't quite work out why it was behaving so strangely. And you know, sure enough, digging into it, eventually the support team managed to find out that you know one of the systems had different settings configured than all of the others. And when I when I sort of dug into, well, why is this? What's your what's your configuration management system and you know why isn't it triggering this change to be made there was sort of looks of just sort of blankness kind of came across on the on the video call and and they they just didn't even you know well we've only got 20 systems you know what so what's what's your what's your organization's default config management solution you know because we could get it working at, in the in the pilot phase and then you can just use all the same tooling that you you create here when you roll out production and again just kind of blank looks at me well we don't really have a we don't really have a configuration management platform and this is one of the largest telcos in Europe and uh, i just my heart sank because <laughs> like like you i I'd been in this kind of reality distortion bubble for a long time, thinking that this kind of automation and config management was just the way that everybody did things once they <laughs> grow up. You know, when you started, yeah, sure, it might be a little bit scrappy, but you know that that's just the way that's just the way you would do. But no, it's it's, and this was as recent as only about two and a half, three years ago, uh, and the fact that you know. It's, Still, major organisations today are are 
in a position where this is not the norm. This is not actually uh, uh, the default. It, it's it's just it's highly disturbing to me. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's quite it, it it is quite frightening. Uh, and you think about if you think about any form of physical engineering practice, if they yeah. didn't have the if they didn't have the engineering standards they had. Could you imagine the number of bridges in the world that fell down? (laughs) You know, the number of aeroplanes that fell out of the sky. They have very, very rigid engineering practices that are actually there for good reason. Now, I think uh, having extreme rigidity in your processes certainly within the tech industry would probably be counterproductive Uh, and i suspect a lot of a lot of us who came to this industry have a, a sort of creative side to us which is one of the things that we get to indulge with technology because there's so much choice but at the same time, I think some more structure would be useful. I, I, part of the problem, I suspect, is that this industry has grown up extremely fast, probably faster than any other sort of uh, industrialization in in the history of mankind. You look at you look at the internet uh, and what it's done for us in as little as thirty years. It's, it's pretty incredible the way the world has changed in such a short space of time. Uh, you know, I remember working in the ISP in 1996 and and absolutely everybody around me was extremely sharp, very, very, very smart people. And, and, and everybody could learn everything extremely quickly because they had to. And then, of course, yeah. us, this all scaled at a phenomenal rate of knots. More and more people piled into the industry who maybe weren't used to working at that sort of pace. And things changed. And I think the sort of the pace of industry change, people have not kept up with it. And therefore, people have stuck with things that they knew 30 years ago. Um, And so you don't get people realizing that there are far easier ways of doing things. And that sometimes just investing a tiny bit of time learning one of these sort of tools will ultimately serve you far better than not doing it. Um, yeah. It's grown up too quickly, the industry, I think. It, I think you're right. So, thank you to Mark. Um, there are many links that uh, were mentioned throughout this first part of the interview, but uh, we were just having such a good discussion. This has uh, gone into a two-parter. So you'll see some links in the show notes below if you're interested in some of the things we were talking about. Um, And uh, I hope you'll join us for part two. Uh, Thanks to Mark so far for all of his uh, his thoughts and wisdom. Yeah, definitely. Part two will come out uh, not next week, because that's a new show, but the week after that. So uh, tune in for the exciting ending of this uh, narrative i guess (laughs) all right if that's all the funniness you have for today anything else from you nothing else from me then that is all we have for today you can support this podcast as usual by becoming a patron we like our patrons and every contribution does really help we are even if they didn't uh, mention it before we are on youtube like, subscribe, yeah. notifica- <laughs> click the notification bell, do all that YouTube stuff. We're still going for that 100 subscribers, so give us a push. Help us get that all over the line. Also, you can go to www.roaringelf.org. You can find a link to the Patreon page and the YouTube page as well. You can find information about podcasts, and you can also follow us on Twitter using the at Hadoopcast tag, and you can send feedback to podcast at roaringelephant.org. Until next time, my name is John. 
And my name is Dave. And I look forward to talking to you next week. Goodbye. Speak then. <laughs> <laughs>